This is a bit of a challenging passage. We're in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. There's a lot going on here that we don't want to miss, especially as we've prayed that God would speak through his word to us this morning. So let's hear him in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is God's word to us. Let us pray that his Holy Spirit would open our minds and hearts to hear him today. Please pray with me. Lord our God, we need to hear your word. We need soft hearts, open minds, to hear what you speak today. So I plead, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would use your word that's sharper than a two-edged sword to pierce where it needs to pierce, to cut, to divide and separate, but that our soft hearts would hear it by your spirit. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, anytime we come to a passage of Scripture, we want to see both what it's saying and how it's saying that. And this section flows from the end of chapter 3, where we just heard that they were unable to enter God's promised rest because of unbelief. And it's applying, this whole passage is one big application unpacking Psalm 95 in the context of New Testament believers, this Hebrew audience. You'll see if you skim through there, you have therefore, for, 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 therefore, since, so then, let us therefore. There's all these words that are transition that are taking what we just heard in chapter 3 from Psalm 95 and applying them directly today. In the hearing of this audience. That's what we want to hear. How this applies today. Now, what the author is doing 
is he's taking this beautiful two chapters of ancient Israelites' redemptive history. Catch this. I'm not trying to turn my back, but I want to do it the same way so that you're not looking backwards. So he's saying there's Exodus and then there's glory. There's redemption and then there's glory. And what he's saying is we can't just look at those two chapters. That can't be the only lens that we read all of Scripture. He's saying we need to take Exodus and go back to creation, to God's Sabbath rest, and we need to take redemption and move on to glorification. So we've got to unfold and see all four chapters, creation, redemption, sorry, fall, redemption, glorification. We need to see all four chapters of these important pieces of the story so that the promise of rest will make sense for us, so that we can understand what rest in Christ really means. Because I think here's the problem for us. We hear words like rest and we think nap. We hear words like work and we think nine to five, clocking in, clocking out. And that's not what the writers of any part of the Bible have to mean for us today. If I could put this, the whole sermon in one sentence, it would be to hear, fear, and believe so that we can enter this promised rest today. Two guiding questions for us. How do warnings work? What are the warnings? What are we warned from? What are we warned to? And then, what is this promise? What is the promise for? What does it help us see? Where does it move us into? So how how does the warning work? Again, right off the bat, the very first word in the Hebrew text, which is helpfully clarified in your English translation in front of you, not therefore, that comes a little bit later, but the very first word in the Hebrew text is fear, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Fear what? What is the warning to fear? Now, we've seen the, a couple warnings in Hebrews. There's five total big warnings that are unpacked in different ways. We saw one back in chapter 2. We're going to see a couple more uh, later on. But this warning of fear, what, am we, what are we supposed to fear? I thought fear was unhealthy. I thought, thought fear was of the devil. Well, here, he's talking about a healthy fear that we need to have of the very previous word, the end of chapter 3, verse 19, is unbelief. Fear, unbelief. What about unbelief should I fear? Well, the very warning that unbelief creates a cancer. It creeps in and then it spreads out. And this is exactly what the people of Israel saw. They had experienced God's deliverance, his strong right hand, take them out of slavery in Egypt, walk them through a Red Sea on dry land, bring them into the wilderness and feed them meat and give them drink of pouring out of rocks. And then he showed them the promised land. And rather than fear their, or sorry, a healthy belief in the promise of God, they feared unbelief in what they weren't able to do. They saw giants. We can't conquer giants. We're little people. So the warning is fear. Now there's a fear from and there's a fear to. 
We want to make sure we're getting the healthy part of fear, not just being afraid of the unhealthy part of fear. That would be redundant and not helpful. And where I want to go for a second is where Hebrews 2.15 helps us see that there's a, there's a fear of death that subjects us all to slavery that we have been freed from. Those of us who believe in Christ, Hebrews 2.15 says, that Christ came actually to deliver us from a fear of death are subject to a lifelong slavery. So there's this unhealthy fear of unbelief, sorry, of of slavery, of death, is unhealthy that we need to be delivered from when we realize Christ has actually been there for us. There's a type of variation of fear, though, that is nagging. It's part of the fall, that second chapter of redemption history, where we fear what we can't control. We fear what we dread and what is kind of imposed in our world. We have this low-level anxiety that affects us all. And at some level, they're all variations on the sins of pride and self-reliance. If I can quote from one of my favorite authors, Paul Tripp, in his New Morning Mercies, This is a little bit longer quote that I'm going to read even more, but I think it's worth it, so bear with me. He says this, Please, believer, hear this and let it be helpful in your warning against the unhealthy fear. He says, Fear lives and rules in the heart even of a person who has forgotten God's sovereignty and grace. If left to myself, I should be afraid. There are many trials, temptations, dangers, and enemies in this fallen world that are bigger and more powerful than me. I have to deal with many things that are outside my control. But the message of the gospel is that I haven't been left to myself. That Emmanuel, God is with me in sovereign authority and powerful grace. He rules with perfect wisdom over all the circumstances and locations that would make me afraid. In grace, he blesses me with everything I need to face what he has decided to put in my plate. I am never in anything, anywhere, at any time by myself. I never arrive on the scene first. I never step into a situation that exists outside God's control. I never move beyond the reach of his authority. He is never surprised by where I end up or by what I am facing. He never leaves me to the limited resources of my own wisdom, my own strength, my own righteousness. He never grows weary with protecting and providing for me. He will never abandon me out of frustration. I do not need to be afraid. When you forget God's sovereignty and his grace, you give room in your heart for fear to do its nasty, debilitating work. Pray right now for grace to remember. That is painting for us the unhelpful, unhealthy fear of things outside of my control. But with belief, we can have the right and healthy fear of God, which is actually then a reverent, holy fear, the healthy fear that puts me in my right place and sees God in the right context that he is actually in control. He is actually sovereign and he has the power and he cares 
to walk us through all these seasons. So what should we be afraid of? What is this warning to fear unbelief? It's to fear those things where I've put myself in the place of control. And then as we can imagine, we walk into this land and we see giants. Well, if I'm in control, I better be able to defeat the giants. Guess what? I can't. I don't have swords. I don't have strength. But if God's in control, two of those spies saw the same things that the other ten did. Two of those spies realized that God was in control. Their fear was in God. The healthy fear in his sovereign plan and his promise. I will give you this land. I'm sure they were seeing the same size giants. But their healthy fear was in the Lord. So that's what we need to be afraid of. Not the unhealthy fear, but the right, good, healthy fear of a sovereign God that turns into reverence. Now, how does that fear work? How does that healthy fear actually function? Well, it turns what Hebrews 2.15 says, it turns our fear of death into lifelong slavery. It frees us from that. Who frees us from that? Christ has freed us from that so that my fear of those things I can't control turn into, oh, well, Christ can, does, because he has controlled all things. So my healthy fear, the reverent fear of the Lord, actually is a healthy comparison. It's a healthy uh, bringing alongside of the relationship that we have with Christ. It's a reverent fear. And this is what, again, going back to the story of Exodus, this is what Joshua is trying to teach his people when Moses is passing along the torch to Joshua in Deuteronomy 30, and he's teaching them. He's like saying, remember all these things. Remember the places where God has delivered you. Not you've delivered yourself. Remember where God has delivered you. And he says in Deuteronomy 12, verse 30, sorry, 30 verse 12 and 13, He says to Joshua, assemble the people that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all of the the words of this law that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. The healthy fear of the Lord puts all the other things into the right place. It gives us the right perspective. It sees God as great and powerful and caring for us. Again, if we map this onto the Exodus, and as the Exodus is actually a type, it's a picture of all of our spiritual journeys. We're delivered from slavery. We're brought out of slavery not because of our own desire, not because of our own motives, not because of our own ability, but because God's strong right hand. And then we're brought into the wilderness where we see God for who he really is, which really needs to humble us and exalt him. Then we see this renewed relationship, God on the mountain declares who he is of his own character. 
He is the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who he is. And he's brought this people, like you and I, into relationship with him. And because of that, he says, and now I can give you a promised land that's flowing with milk and honey, that's got good things, cities you didn't build, wells you didn't dig, vineyards you didn't plant, you get to receive. Now, I've never dug a well, but I can imagine, even though Israel is nothing like Tennessee clay, it's a doozy to put a hole in the ground deep enough that water actually comes out. What we need to see here, and we'll clarify this as we see the promise unpacked, is my fear, if I'm in control, I think I've got to work enough, I've got to labor and struggle and strive enough to earn some rest. I think that I have to do something to get myself rested. Okay, now I've done all my chores. Now where's my hammock? I can take a nap. Please hear this chapter in in Israelites' redemptive history takes that and flips it on its head. And in case we didn't miss that, or in case we missed it, in case we didn't see that unpacked in Psalm 95, here's the beauty of what our author does. He says, verse 4, for somewhere spoken of the seventh day that God rested on the seventh day from all his work. Now, I don't think the author of Hebrews forgot where this quote comes from. I actually think it's a didactic method. He's a teaching pastor who's trying to say, y'all know this. Somewhere, Genesis 2, like every eight-year-old Israelite, Jew, and Hebrew from then on would memorize the creation story. They would know where he's quoting. He's getting them to rehearse in their own mind. Oh yeah, that's where, not just in the Exodus story, all the way back in creation, God anchored his process, his pattern of work then rest. And because his pattern was work then rest, he can give us rest because he's done the work. So we get this promise because God's done the work. Now, I want to be really clear and try to put this into salvation terms because rest here isn't just what we might usually think of as nap or relaxation time. I hope I'm not ruining any of y'all's afternoon schedules. In salvation terms, rest is a, a picture of our justification in Christ. We are saved from our sins, not because of our own works or righteousness or even uh, attitude or desires or motivations. We're saved because of Christ, his finished work on the cross. When does the rest come in then? The rest comes in as an already and not yet picture of where my standing is before a holy God. In terms of my justification, it is finished. I am declared righteous. In terms of my sanctification, 
today, how do I work that out? It's an ongoing process. That's why this warning needs to be so clear. If we fear what I have to control, I've just put into my own thinking those categories of how am I saved? Well, I had to do something. I better have brought enough goodness or maybe I just tipped the scale on what I got better than worse. And he's saying, no. He's painting this picture of ancient Israelite history to say the Exodus didn't work out that way when they had already been delivered from slavery. They're free in the wilderness. They default into thinking, oh, now we've got to do something. Even when they're given manna, some of them think, oh, Saturday's here, Friday for them. I better stock up double so they have something tomorrow to eat. And some of them are like, no, no, no. We're going to get this wrong. We're going to miss out on some of God's promise. They're taking control themselves. They're trying to do enough to earn what only can be received as a gift. This warning, though, please hear this. If you're struggling with how these warnings come, this warning is very similar to the warning that we saw back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where the warning was framed not in, or else you'll be doomed. The warning was framed in, look at how great a salvation this is. That's why I appreciate how the ESV has framed this. Even though fear is the first word to pair up with unbelief in the very last uh, phrase of chapter 3, the ESV has put, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, then let us fear. In other words, the warning, is, the warning is not framed in the negative side, the horrible consequences of not. It's framed in, look how good and great and glorious this promise is. And it still stands. It hasn't evaporated. So see how good this is? See how good the rest in the Lord is? That's why we should fear unbelief. If I don't see this promise, if I just think it's maybe a nice thing for the weekends or something I can go through the routines or yeah, I said that prayer when I was a teenager and then we're back in our own habits of controlling life, controlling holiness, controlling my stance before God, we haven't understood how great the warning is or how terrible that fear of unbelief can be. So fear, unbelief. Now, we've got to deal with the fact that in verse 2, the author says, good news came to them, to us, just as to them. Well, what was the difference? There's good news that God's promise has been clearly declared. You will receive a promise. You will receive the inheritance. You will be delivered out of the hands of slavery into the land of blessing. They heard the good news. What was the difference? The author goes out of his way to say this in the second half of verse 2. They heard it, but did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. This should 
catch some of us at the kneecaps, like swoop our feet out from under us because for a second we can think that, oh yeah, I was in this group and we all raised our hand or oh, I remember that day that we said the prayer and that might be good enough. But faith is not a once and uh, emptied after that. Faith is a continued growth. What does he say? They heard the message. We got to hear the message, but we have to unite that with faith. The hearing doesn't do what God sent it to do unless his spirit unites that with faith that anchors that message in our hearts. That's the direction he's wanting this warning to go. Don't let this message fall on deaf ears, he's saying. Take what you hear, unite it, super hot glue it to faith, stick it there so it's deeply stuck in your hearts and minds and lives, and then see the promise of God unfolded before you. How do we do that? We take this promise and we realize that it's actually not a concept. Rest isn't an idea. It's a person. It's always got an object of this verb, the rest in Christ. Those that have received Christ realize that he's done everything. He's worked for us. His cross has been finished. It's completed. There's no more that we need to do. We are fully delivered from all our sins. But this promise comes in the middle For those Egyptian slaves, the Israelites that had been freed from that, some of them thought, this desert wandering isn't cutting it. I want to go back. At least there we had food. They hadn't heard the promise and united it with faith that the promise was actually that good. It will be worth it. So that's why at the end of this section, the very last phrase In verse 11, the striving, the thing that the author is trying to move us towards, the good side of the promise, the action that we need to take is towards entering the rest that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Here again, I think that promise is really key. The promise to enter the rest is realize that Christ has done it all. That anchors our faith. That helps our fear to be healthy and holy in God, not in my own abilities or inabilities. But where does disobedience come in? Here again, we have to look at the context of this passage. In in ancient Israelites, when they're exiting slavery, there was a whole bunch of them in this group. Some of them heard the message and believed. Some of them that heard the message and believed actually obeyed and lived according to the promises. Some of them didn't obey. Some of them thought that, oh, I'm just in the group, so I'm going to go along with the crowd, and everybody else is getting the benefits of this covenant people, so I'm brought along with that. What does that mean for us today? It's too easy in the Bible Belt of the South, to go along with these external activities 
to seem like we're obeying out there. All our behavior is in line. I'm not off the charts of my morality. And even to show up in a covenant community on Sunday. But the message has never pierced my heart. I go through the routine, but it hasn't struck and anchored my faith to Christ. And because we're in a culture that has lots of blessings, a lot of the sin habits that we can get into, we don't see the immediate consequences. They don't smack us in the face like disobeying God in the wilderness. The earth isn't opening up and the thieves and idolaters and idolaters are not being eaten by the ground the way that it was back then. So I think everything's cool. Oh yeah, God and I, we're good. We're okay. I go through the motions. I'm good. Please fear unbelief because unbelief is the stem of disobedience. It doesn't work the other way. We can't do the right things to prove we're in with God. We have to see his faith. And then the outflowing of that is that we want to do the right things. So how does this promise work? It would be like if I'm going on a a tour of a, say, a chocolate factory. I like the Willy Wonka idea. And you didn't want to pay for the full tour that included the taste testing at the end. So you just kind of mosey through and, oh, wait, there's the group. The whole group. They paid for the tour, and the tour guide doesn't notice, and I know that there's a yummy taste test at the end. So, hey, guys, what's happening? Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. That's fascinating. Wow, explain more to me. Oh, I have a question about that. How's that work again? And then I'm, I'm thinking I'm in the group, but I just am in the group to get the benefits at the end. That's how this warning should hit us. And the way the warning is framed is, don't fake it. The way the warning is framed is, if you're here, hear how good the promise is. It's a good enough promise that it should captivate us. It should set aside all of the weight that so easily entangles us called sin. It should turn our eyes from thinking that those things, the way I disobey, oh, they're, they're fine. Everybody else is doing it. It's not causing me any trouble. It's not affecting any of y'all. The promise is better than all of those sins lies every single time because the promise is Christ himself. So how does the promise work? It really gets us down to the nitty-gritty of what is rest, how do we enjoy it, where does it come from? Again, Hebrews here uses this long quote, now he's reiterated it from Psalm 95 to illuminate, to put on display for us this part of Israelite history when God had promised that belief will get them into the blessing land. They will enter the rest of the promised land. But disbelief, God says, because in my wrath they will not enter my rest. So that's the line. And he's saying if this is the rest, it's not because what they did or didn't do. It's but what because God has given them. And he makes that clear in unpacking all the way back to creation, 
to say the rest that God has given wasn't something he invented on the spot in the wilderness. It's something he built into the very fabric of creation that for six days God created the world and on the seventh day he rested from his labors. And he gives us that pattern. Now that pattern is in already, it's already here, and it's a really amazing not yet. There's still some Sabbath rest that's going to blow our minds and knock off our socks because it's going to be that good when we get there. And that's what he's pointing to in this passage because it's not limited to the context of the Exodus. It's not just something that the wilderness wanderers got once they got in the promised land, the end. It's something that was good for them and it's even better in Christ. So what is the rest and what is the work? So God's promised rest is actually framed for us in Sabbath. There's a different word for the rest as the promise and the Sabbath rest that is in that pattern. At the end of Revelation, sorry, halfway in, in, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12 to 13, John writes that there's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This end picture of eternal rest, it's the way that the, the rest of Hebrews is going to talk about the direction we're headed. It's the heavenly kingdom, the city that has no end. In Hebrews 11, 10 and 12, 22. So this, there's this not yet there. We're aiming for something glorious and grand that's going to be the, the end of all of our lives and the beginning of the rest of eternity. There is this grand and glorious rest with the Lord. But there's still how it works today. There's an already, there's already this pattern that we need to get into our lives, that we need to build in, have built into our daily structure. Because it's both a command to obey the Sabbath, to keep it holy, and it's an invitation because the Sabbath is not, the rest in the Lord is not just, again, an idea, something to check off my calendar. It's actually rest in Christ. It's relying on him, not my own abilities. It's to see that we can rest in and then grow in that relationship with Christ. Sinclair Ferguson says, we can rest in Christ from our labor of self-sufficiency. When I think that I'm doing enough, when I think that I even can do enough by my own strength, ability, intellect, grit, and hard work, get enough on God's good side that I'll be okay, that I can rest hard because I worked hard, we've got the wrong mentality. And the challenge is so much in the world around us puts our lives into those kind of categories. We work hard, or pl- work hard so we can play hard. We work in school so that we can get a grade. We work at our job so we can have a performance or eval. We strive on the f- 
field so that we can win the championship. And all those things are healthy for our own habits, but in terms of spiritual salvation, we've got to see that rest is a gift and the work comes after that. So what is this rest? To rest in Christ is to receive the gift of salvation. We can't work. We can't earn. It's not getting some of God's favor and hoping, wishing, just trusting that there'll be more along the way. It's God declaring us justified and righteous in Christ for my sins being put on him, on Christ on the cross, and being totally, completely paid for. And then, my control, my self-reliance, anything and everything that I think I need to achieve in terms of God's view or perception of me is earned for me in Christ and him alone. So what happens to all those other things my fear of my own failures, my fear of the areas that I'm not able to compete or be responsible for or miss out on or what if there's better options, all those fears, they they turn to dust. The things of earth, earth just pass away in light of his glory and grace. So rest is actually resting in Christ's finished work on my behalf. So where does the work come in? What does that mean in the last part of verse 11? Therefore, let us strive to enter God's rest. Striving then comes out of that promise. Once you've been given salvation, you know it's so good. There's a lot that you get to know more about Christ and his person and his work and his spirit's activity in your life, on a daily basis. How do you love him better today than you did yesterday? How do you serve him more gladly tomorrow than you even did today? Because God cares about not only what we do, but how we do it and why we're doing it. He cares about the motives, the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Dallas Willard puts it this way. Grace, God's gift of grace, is not opposed to effort. It is completely opposed to earning. We have to get that in the right order, though. We have to realize that because God worked and then rested, we get to first rest and then work, strive, labor, wrestle with our sin and failures so that we can enjoy the promise that's already there. And that's why this word today is reiterated seven times in this book. You're going to hear it over and over and over again. God works today. He wants us to strive today. Because the the argument is anchored in this fact in chapter 4, verse 8, 
Because if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Because there's already and not yet. The people in the wilderness are striving forward to a day when they get to enter God's rest and everything is given them. And for us today, we've already been given salvation in Christ, but we're not yet there. So rather than trying to work to get there, we get to rest in what God has already done for us and strive to see it lived out in our lives, in our thinking, in our desires, in our feelings, in our choices, in the way that we relate with one another. So this salvation that is given us today is that rich and good. And then guess what's tomorrow? When we get there, tomorrow, it's going to be today. So another day that is fresh and new, God's mercies are anew and alive, then as today, for us to strive and enjoy who Christ is and what he's done for us. I think this rephrases the way that often we talk about our salvation. I I think a lot of times we rightly ask, so tell me when you were saved. And that's a beautiful story. I've gotten to hear some of those testimonies of, of y'all's walk, the way that God has worked through your life. And it was amazing back then. Well, when I was this many years older, I never didn't know a day that I didn't know the Lord. And, and that's a beautiful thing to put God's glory and his incredible saving grace on display. But part of our question, maybe the way that we can encourage and help to warn one another in the healthy right way is, How are you resting in God's promises today? And how are you striving to see that lived out today? Because the offer is daily extended to rest in what Christ has already done for us and to strive to put that into practice, to see the promise renewed daily. Again, if if the warning is to fear unbelief and the promise is received and actually anchored in belief, what is my daily practice of belief? It's actually to see the promises of God better than the temptation of sin and self-control, of reliance on what I can do. It says God is better than all these other things. His promises are true, and all these other things are lies. It's rightly putting on display God's glory. So today, do not let the promise go. Do not let go of the promise. The last important piece of how this promise works is that it's put in the group context. It's a group project. No, I'm not saved based on y'all's efforts. But we are together a community. What Robert has mentioned, the ecclesia, the fellowship, the assembly of God's people, and we need one another. I need y'all's encouragement. You need our reminders. We need to see your example of humble striving after God day in and day out. We need every generation to see how they've 
pressed on in different seasons of life, coming up against different cultural waves of whatever. We need each other. That's why right in the very beginning, verse 1 and 2, let us fear, for good news came to us just as to them. Actually, every part of this is referring to the plural group. There is no individual in this entire passage. So are we united by faith to one another? Do I believe and do I understand that belief in the we? Do I listen alongside of other believers? Do I get challenged in my sin by one another? Do I encourage one another? Do I strive alongside one another? Do I look forward to how God is working and seeing those glimpses of how his promises are true and better each and every new day? Or are we uniting ourselves with others who are not believers, who are not contending for the faith once delivered? Y'all, this is why our our small group ministry, the the different ministries we have here, to get you shoulder to shoulder with another believer is so crucial. Whether you're in a Bible study, a home fellowship group, or meet with someone at different seasons of life. It could be that you're shoulder to shoulder with somebody who's parenting the same season of life that you're parenting, or that you're both uh, in that empty nest stage and you're trying to see how God's at work and your kids or grandkids but we need one another. We need one another daily, today, so long as it is called today, to call us back, to rightly rest in the work of the Lord, and then to strive to see the promise received. The last phrase, that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience remind us that we have a promise. We have proof that this promise actually worked. Because did you catch, as this whole passage in Hebrews moves from the the way that Christ is the the Son of God, the very God-man, brought down to earth and he's better than angels, he's better than Moses, that in this passage he's better than Joshua, that his very name is the name of Joshua. It's Yeshua, which means he saves. It's the very point that if any of us are stuck or feel in that rut of disobedience, where do we go? What do we cling to? What moves my fear to Belief, Jesus, the Savior, the one who saves, the one who can pick me up out of the desert wandering, the wilderness, the rut of self-reliance or of trying to earn enough to be good enough. Jesus will pull us out of that when we believe on him. And the way that he does that mercifully is described in the very next passage, which is what we're going to see next week, that the word of God, it's not an empty and shallow word. 
but it's living and active. And its intent is to cut, not to wound, but to pierce, to allow God's Spirit to be at work, to show us our unbelief, to show us our disobedience, to turn a stubborn people's heart like yours and mine to a gracious and glorious Savior. And when we pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, Jesus is always listening and will always show us proof that the promise is real. Please pray with me. God, you are good. Your promises are true. Lord, help us this day, today, to rest in you, to find our eternal rest in Christ that is so good it it comes all the way back through redemption history to my day, to our day today, so that we can rest in you and then strive to enjoy to learn more, to praise you deeper, to see you lived out in all of life more deeply. We pray this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.